this morning at verses 8 through 20. And just to get your bearings, if you go back to verse 1, you'll remember that Paul is in the city of Ephesus. He had stopped there briefly on his second missionary journey, and now on his third missionary journey, he returns as he promised in chapter 18 and verse 21. This time he's going to stay there longer than he stayed in any other city. And I think the results reflect that because the church that grew up in Ephesus was as solid and effective as any in the New Testament. In fact, if you look at verse 20, Luke gives us a summary statement about what was going on in Ephesus. It says, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now, you can't get a better endorsement than that. Where does the Word of God grow? Well, it grows in the hearts of people. And so in Ephesus, it wasn't just that the Word of God was taking root in the hearts of people. It was growing mightily. And he also tells us it wasn't just impacting a few people, but it was prevailing. Now, that word prevailing is an interesting word. It's also used in this passage in verse 16 of a demon-possessed man who overpowered seven would-be exorcists. So he tells us that the Word of God was overpowering people. It was conquering people in the kingdom of Satan and bringing them into the kingdom of God. And so exciting things were taking place in Ephesus. This church was on fire for God. They were growing upward and outward mightily. And what I'd like to do this morning is try to highlight some of the reasons why. Why was the Word of God growing and prevailing in Ephesus? And I've picked out five reasons, five things that marked this growing church. The first is bold proclamation in verses 8 to 10. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, Paul's brief visit in Ephesus in chapter 18 had been very encouraging. In fact, in chapter 18 and verse 20, we're told that the Jews asked him to stay longer. This time, he gets a similar response from the Jews in the synagogue, and I think that's evidenced by the fact that he stayed there for three months. Usually by then, he had long worn out his welcome. In fact, the best we can understand, he was in this synagogue longer than he was in any other synagogue with the possible exception of the city of Corinth in chapter 18. And what was Paul doing in the synagogue? Well, it says he was reasoning and persuading them. He was doing what he had done in every synagogue in every city. He was dialoguing and convincing the Jews about what? About the kingdom of God. Now, when it says the kingdom of God, we often today think about the future thousand-year reign of Christ. That's not what Paul is doing here. I mean, he's not getting up charts and everything and talking about eschatology and future things and trying to explain the details of the thousand-year reign of Christ. When he's talking about the kingdom, that's really synonymous with the gospel. And let me show you that. Just turn over a couple pages or maybe one page to Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. At the end of that verse, Paul, speaking to the elders in Ephesus, says, 
the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God, verse 25, and now behold, I know that you all among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Now you can circle the word gospel in verse 24 and the word kingdom in verse 25 because they are synonymous. He is using them interchangeably. They are the same message. And so when Paul comes into the synagogue on this occasion, he speaks about the kingdom because that's something that the Jews were familiar with. And he tells them who the king is. It's Jesus. And he tells them why he came. Not to sit on a throne as they were anticipating, but to hang on a cross. He didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin. And he did that through his death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul, I'm sure, went on to tell them how to get into the kingdom. As Jesus had said in John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he also told them about the present character of the kingdom. He would later write it down in Romans 14, 17, where he said, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom is not an external thing. It's an internal thing. And then I'm sure he also told them about the future aspect of the kingdom, that Jesus was coming back to establish that literal, physical, external kingdom. And so that's what Paul is preaching about these three months in the synagogue. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice how he preached about the kingdom of God. It says he did so boldly. Boldness must always accompany the gospel because it's done in enemy territory. Paul is preaching about the kingdom of God in the kingdom of Satan. You know, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul lists God's armor that we are to put on. And it's interesting, if you look through that list, most of the armor is defensive. It's the helmet of salvation. It's the breastplate of righteousness. It's the shield of faith. In fact, if you look in that list, there is only one piece of offensive weaponry, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, you may not have to be bold to use defensive armor. You just have to kind of hide behind it. But if you're going to use an offensive weapon like a sword, you have to be bold. And that's why if you read Ephesians chapter 6, Paul lifts that armor, and the last piece is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and then right after that, he gives a prayer request. And you know what his prayer request is? Let me read it to you. Ephesians 6, 19, Paul says, And I pray, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, I've got the armor, I've got the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray that I might be bold enough to use it. See, we've got the sword of the Spirit. What we need is boldness because we have to wield it in enemy territory. And verse 9 of our chapter indicates that, where it says, But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude. Initially, Paul had a warm reception in the synagogue, but three months later, he met opposition. 
And the indication here is that that opposition didn't arise overnight. The word hardened is in the imperfect tense, which indicates that it was a process. And that's a process that still happens in people's lives today. When someone rejects the gospel, it becomes a little easier to reject the gospel the next time because their heart becomes a little harder and a little harder, and after a while, they're hardened to the gospel. That's what happened with some of the people in the synagogue on this occasion. And then it says they were also disobedient. Now, that's an obvious thing. They were disobedient because they were sinners. But what he's saying here that they were specifically disobedient to a command of God. And that command we can look at back in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. You see, God's message to lost, fallen man is one simple thing. Repent. They became hardened. They heard the call of God and in disobedience, they said, no. And so they were hardened, they were disobedient, and then that manifests itself in an outward way because Paul tells us they were then speaking evil of the way. And the way was a title that had become associated with the believers in the early church. We read it in Acts chapter 9 and verse 2. We'll see it again in this chapter in verse 23. And it's really a fitting title because true Christianity is not a religion. It's a way of life. In following the one who said, I am the way. These people decided to go their own way, and so they slandered the believers in Ephesus. And verse 9 continues, He therefore, Paul, withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Paul realized that nothing was to be gained by staying in the synagogue, and so he took the believers with him, and he went to the school of Tyrannus. Now, we're not told anything about this fellow. He was probably a local philosopher who had a school there in the city of Ephesus. His name means tyrant. Now, I have trouble imagining that parents would sit down with a little name book and go, hmm, tyrant, that's a great name. Now, they may have named him that later uh, when he was three or four, but the assumption here is that this is probably a nickname given to this fellow by his students behind his back. He, he had a formal name. They called him the tyrant. And uh, some of you professors may have similar titles uh, from your students. He apparently graded hard. He was the tyrant. And Paul apparently rented this facility from him and used it for a school of his own. Now, some of the ancient manuscripts add that Paul used it from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now, that's not in the original scriptures, but it may be an accurate statement because historians tell us that Greek cities of the first century shut down about 11 a.m. They had lunch. They had a long nap. They worked in the yard. They took the afternoon hot time off. In fact, Ray Stedman says the working day began about 7 in the morning. The shops closed at 11 and everyone went home until 4 when the shops reopened and business went on till about 9.30 at night. F.F. F. Bruce says there were more people asleep at 1 p.m. than at 1 a.m. 
So Tyrannus would have taught his school during the morning hours, and then when he went home for lunch and a siesta, in the downtime, it was available for Paul to come in and rent it and use it for a school of his own. And so Paul's schedule looked something like this. He got up in the morning and made tents all morning. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at chapter 20 and verse 34. Here he's speaking to the elders at this church, the church in Ephesus, and he says in verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. What's he saying? I didn't take money from anybody. I worked with my hands to support myself and these other fellows. So he worked during the morning in Ephesus. Then from 11 to 4, he taught school for five hours, or he trained disciples for five hours. You say, well, then at 4 o'clock, he probably went home and finished his day. No. He continued ministering after that. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at chapter 20 again in verse 31. He says to these same elders, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. I didn't stop at 4 p.m. I worked night and day admonishing you. Where did he do that? Chapter 20, verse 20 says, I did not shriek from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. He taught publicly in the school of Tyrannus. After that, he went from house to house admonishing, exhorting, and teaching people. That was a busy schedule. In fact, if you come back to chapter 19 and verse 10, we notice that it wasn't a short-term arrangement. It says, and this took place for two years. Paul taught daily for two years. Now, five hours a day, six days a week for two years is 3,120 hours of teaching. That's a lot of teaching. You say, well, why would Paul invest so much time in doing that? Well, the answer is in verse 10. And this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. See, Paul didn't travel all over Asia Minor. He stayed in Ephesus. He taught and trained and equipped these individuals who then took the word of God throughout Asia Minor. And if you look at an ancient map of Asia Minor, you'll find that there were many churches planted at this point in time. Churches in Colossae and Herapolis, and the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, they're all bunched around Ephesus in Asia Minor, all established at this point in time. And I see two important lessons here about how to do ministry. Number one, it must be done in God's timing. Back in chapter 16 and verse 6, on his second missionary journey, Paul traveled to the edge of Asia Minor and he looked at Asia Minor and he said, that is a great mission field. And so he started to go there and it says he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia Minor. God said no. He went on about his ministry and he came back through Ephesus on his way back to Antioch in Acts 18.21. He went into the synagogue, got a great response. The people said, please stay. But Paul sensed that it wasn't God's time. And so he said to them in Acts 18, 21, I will return to you again if God wills. It's not God's will for me to be here now, but I will return 
if he opens the door. Now he comes back on his third missionary journey in God's timing, and he reaches all of Asia Minor, an area larger than the state of California. You see, he was effective. God was blessing because he was sensitive to the timing of God. There's a second lesson here, and that is it must be done God's way. You see, Paul didn't race around Asia Minor trying to get to all these cities himself. He stayed put in Ephesus. He trained and equipped other Christians to go out and do the work. And you know, later when he wrote the letter to this church at Ephesus, he told them that that is really God's game plan. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 says, God gave some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. God gave apostles and pastors and teachers and evangelists, why? Not to do all the work, but to equip other Christians to do the work. That's God's plan. And if we're going to be effective in ministry, we need to be careful to do it in God's timing and in God's way. And so the first mark of this growing church was bold proclamation in the synagogue, in the school of Tyrannus, and throughout the province. Second mark is clear confirmation in verses 11 and 12. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Miracles were taking place in Ephesus at this time. And let me just point out three things about these miracles. Number one, the source of the miracles. You see that in verse 11? God was performing the miracles by the hands of Paul. See, Paul is not the miracle worker. God is. He's doing the miracles. He is the source. Second thing about these miracles is the nature of the miracles. Notice, Luke describes them as extraordinary. Now, that sounds a little redundant, doesn't it? I mean, every miracle is extraordinary. But Luke says these were extraordinary miracles. What's he mean? He means they're different from other kinds of miracles. They're different from the previous miracles we've seen. Why are they different? Verse 12, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Now, when it says handkerchiefs, it's not talking about the kind you blow your nose with. Uh, literally, that's a, a, a rag that was used as a headband. Pa Paul took these rags, and when he worked, he would tie them around his head. They didn't have the little check on them, but, but they were tied around his head. They kept the sweat from coming down as he worked. And aprons are not the kind you use in the kitchen. They were leather aprons that were used to protect him while he was doing this physical work. And it says these people took Paul's headbands and aprons, took them to those who were sick and possessed with demons, and they were delivered. The closest parallel to this miracle was back in Acts chapter 5 and verse 15 when Peter's shadow was falling on people, and they were being healed. Now let me point out a third thing about these miracles, and that is the purpose of the miracles. Why did God do these extraordinary miracles in the city of Ephesus? Well, let me suggest two reasons. Number one, to accommodate the people. 
Ephesus was a very superstitious city. We will see later in this passage that they were involved in magic and the occult. And just as Paul adapted his message to meet people where they were, on this occasion, the miracles were adapted to meet people where they were. In other words, God provided the kinds of miracles that they would best understand. And God also was responding to the kind of faith that they were expressing. You remember when Jesus was walking along in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 21, it says there was a woman there who was sick, and she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I shall get well. And you see, God responded to her faith. And I believe that's what was happening here in the city of Ephesus. God was accommodating the situation and accommodating their faith, even though it's a very unusual situation. But I think there's a second purpose, and that is that God was doing this to confirm the apostle Paul. And that is the general purpose of miracles throughout the scriptures. Speaking about the message of the gospel, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, 3, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard how God bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles. God confirmed the message by miracles. In defending his own apostleship, Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, said in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. The miracles confirmed that Paul was God's messenger. And that's what's happening here. There was no question about who God was working through. It was Paul's sweat on the sweatbands. It was his aprons that were going to the people. They knew that this was God's messenger. Now let me add a footnote. The reason God confirmed his message and his messenger by miracles at that point in time was because they didn't have the completed New Testament. Today, we no longer have the 12 apostles, but we do have their teachings in the authoritative Word of God. And so today, the thing that confirms a message and a messenger is to hold it up to the Word of God. If somebody from a cult comes to you and says, that Bible's not true, and, and Jesus isn't who he said he is, and just to prove it, I'll make a blind person see, I'll make a lame person walk. And let's say they do it. Will you believe them? I hope not. Because Satan has that same power, and the Bible tells us that in the future he will do many miracles. You see, today we don't judge a messenger by his miracles. We judge a messenger by how he lines up with the truth of God that is given to us. This is the Supreme Court, and there's no appeal beyond this. Third mark of the church at Ephesus, bogus imitation, verses 13 to 16. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, as we've seen before, one of Satan's favorite tricks is to join the team. He wants to join the Christian church. 
And this verse tells us they were some Jewish exorcists, Jews who specialized in casting out demons. You say, well, were they successful? Well, you know, it's hard to say. Because Jesus made an interesting statement in Luke chapter 11. There the Jews accused him of casting out demons by Beelzebul, the, the, the ruler of the demons. And Jesus made this statement in Luke eleven nineteen: If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Hmm. Which tells me that they may have been successful. On occasion they apparently weren't real successful though because when they saw Paul and the success he was having they said we're gonna jump on the bandwagon and we're gonna try it the same way and Luke gives us an illustration of this verse 14 and seven sons of one Sceva a Jewish chief priest were doing this these seven sons of a Jewish chief priest were trying this they were coming to demon-possessed people and they were saying I adjure you to come out by the name of Jesus that Paul preaches that's kind of third hand and here's the response verse 15 and the evil spirit answered and said to them I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul but who are you Now notice here, the evil spirit speaks through the man. That's consistent with what we see in the Gospels. And this evil spirit is not real impressed. It's kind of like using a stolen credit card. You know, it may work if they don't ask you for an ID. Well, these guys come to this demon and he cards them. He says, uh, you know, you're using some pretty impressive names there. And, and normally I would be shivering, but who are you? You know, it makes me pause and wonder because the demons say, we know about Jesus and we know about Paul, but who are you? That tells me that Paul made it into the conference rooms of hell. He was talked about there. They knew about him. It makes me wonder whether they know about us, whether we've made a dent in the kingdom of Satan so much so that they're talking about us. See, they knew about Paul because he was making a difference for God. And then verse 16 says, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued both of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, the New American Standard has the word both in there. Uh, that word is accurately translated that way, but, but it's probably not the way it should be translated here because uh, if you want to look it up, Acts 23, 8 uses that very same word, Greek word, and translates it all. And so it could be translated all here, and I think that's the point here because he tells us there were seven sons. This demon-possessed fellow jumps on all seven of them and mugs them. And of course, demons provide supernatural power on occasion. We see that in Acts chapter 5 where it speaks about a man by the name of Legion. They tried to chain him up and he would break the chains because of the supernatural power. Here he jumps on these seven men, he beats them up, and not only that, but he humiliates them because it says he ripped their clothes off. So they leave naked and wounded. And that's a problem when you're naked and wounded. Because when you're wounded, you want to limp, and when you're naked, you want to hurry. So, so they've kind of got a problem here. 
And that, that, that's funny, but that, this teaches us an important principle. Don't miss it. To the extent that the church has power, the unbelieving world will try to imitate it. That's a compliment. When the unbelieving world is imitating what the church is doing, it's a compliment to the power of God. But you know, the reverse is also true. To the extent to which the church lacks power, it will seek to imitate the world. And that's what we see happening all too often today. The church imitating the world rather than the world trying to imitate the power of the church. The church at Ephesus was growing mightily, and one of the marks of that was bogus imitation by the world. Fourth mark, real renunciation, verses 17 to 19. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. This is the kind of news that, that travels fast and far. Everybody in both the Jewish community and the Greek community heard about these seven sons of Sceva. And the general response was twofold. Number one, there was fear. They recognized that demons were not some, something to trifle with. But they also realized that Jesus was not a name to be borrowed and used on your own terms. Fear. And then secondly, there was awe. In the humiliation of these seven sons of Sceva, Jesus' name was magnified. Jesus was magnified even through the activity of the enemy. But then we read something more specific in verse 18. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. The influence of magic was widespread in Ephesus. In fact, there was a phrase that's found over and over again in ancient documents, the Ephesian writings. And it was a reference to these kind of books that had magical formulas and spells in them that originated in the city of Ephesus. And many of the Christians who had come to faith in Christ were still dabbling in those things. And so on this occasion, when they heard about this event, it sobered them up. And it says here, they kept coming. That means they came as the Spirit of God convicted them. One at a time, they just kept coming. And they were confessing these things and disclosing their practices. Now, I've been to revivals, and I've heard people say some pretty meaningful things. I've heard people confess some very meaningful things. And sometimes those are genuine and last, and sometimes they don't last very long at all. What's impressive to me here is that these people added actions to their words. And that's what we see in verse 19. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. See, they didn't just say, God, I confess to you that I've been dabbling in magic, and I'm not going to do it anymore. In fact, I'm going to take this book and I'm going to stick it in the bottom dresser drawer way in the back, and I promise I won't, I won't mess with it anymore. What's wrong with that? Because a few weeks later, you'll be back there. But you see, these people didn't do that. They burned them up. 
And we're told the value of them. It says it was 50,000 pieces of silver. That's equivalent to 50,000 days' wages. If you assume a day's wage is $40 a day, that's $2 million. You say, well, why didn't they sell them or give them away? Well, because they were evil. They weren't going to do anybody any good. There was only one thing to do with them, and that was to burn them up. This was an expensive bonfire. But this was real renunciation. And I think some of us as Christians need to start a fire. There are often things in our lives that continue to trip us up, and we say, Lord, I'm sorry, I confess, I did it again. And we leave it right there handy so we can keep getting it. It's time we have some real renunciation and burn it up and be done with it and get it out so that we can go on. You know, it's interesting that while Paul resided in the city of Ephesus, he wrote 1 Corinthians. While he was under house arrest in Rome, he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. In later years, he wrote 1 and 2 Timothy to Timothy while he was in the city of Ephesus. Some decades later, the apostle John came to Ephesus where he wrote his gospel and his three epistles in the city of Ephesus. And later he addressed the book of Revelation to the seven churches in Asia Minor, one of which was Ephesus. Which I don't think is an accident. Because the church at Ephesus that purged itself of bad literature became the depository for more sacred literature than any other church in the New Testament. They were serious about getting rid of it, and God said, well, I'll trust you with my word. Let me give you a fifth mark of this church. Honest evaluation. You won't find it in your past, but... Forty years later, Jesus has some words to say to this church. You can read them in Revelation 2, 1 to 7. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, you got good deeds, and you've persevered, and you've dealt with false teachers, and you have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. Forty years later, this church was going through all the motions, but the flame had gone out. They were doing a lot of impressive things, but they had lost the passion for the Lord. Somewhere along the line, they had gotten so busy being Christians that they forgot about Christ. And so Jesus' message to them in that passage is, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deed you did at first. Jesus says, remember how it was when you were throwing those books into the fire? Remember how willing you were to surrender everything for me? Remember how it was when you first came to faith in Jesus Christ and he was the love of your life? Remember how that was? Well, repent. Turn around and go back 
the simplicity of that relationship you had with him at the beginning. That's a great lesson for us. If you're going to be on fire for the Lord 40 years from now, it's going to take some honest evaluation. We're going to need more than one bonfire to keep that fresh love relationship with the Lord Jesus. Because you know what's interesting about the church at Ephesus? As people looked on from the outside, they looked real impressive. They were doing all kinds of things. They were impressive to everyone but Jesus because he knew better and they knew better. So there's the mark, marks of this growing church. Bold proclamation of the gospel. Clear confirmation of the power of God. Bogus imitation by the world that copied what they had. Real renunciation of the hidden sins of their past. And honest evaluation of whether Jesus was really the love of their life. I would say that that's a pretty good checklist for you and I to work off of. We're going to close in prayer, and as we do, I'm going to ask Jim and Linda Frazier to come forward uh, as they were baptized this morning. And after our time of prayer, I'm going to give you the opportunity to come and, and greet those folks. Let's pray together. Father, touch our hearts today. Challenge us. Some of us have walked with you for a long time, and we've had some bonfires in our life but we need a fresh one. And Father, I pray that you would challenge us to put away the things that hinder our walk with you and to realize that the only reason you want us to do that is because you love us first and you want to have that fresh, meaningful, daily love relationship with each of us. Father, help us to realize that it's only through purity that we can enjoy that walk with you. Help us to get serious about our relationship, that we might not only know you better, but be more effective in serving. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.